the Pioneer All Blacks, we beat them um, in Hong Kong. That was a pretty special moment for me. World Cup in 2011, um, beating South Africa in that quarterfinal, kicking the goal to win that. Coming back to Australia and making the World Cup squad, when I'm all accounts, I was um, down and out and, you know, got myself to a place where I was capable of playing at international level again and was involved in the 2019 World Cup. Again, beating the All Blacks in Perth was pretty special. Captaining my own Queensland Reds team to a, a Super Rugby AU title, pretty incredible as well. It's more of the stuff off the field now, like going for a stroll on the property with my dog and my, and my missus. And yeah, it's just... Being around the guys as well, like we've got a great group at, at the Reds and I really enjoy that challenge of every week there's a place and a time where I get to turn up and put it all out there on the line. Hello and welcome back to the Champagne Rugby Podcast. Today I'm joined with my co-host Adam Malone. Adam, how are you doing? I'm very good, Hamish. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And someone that doesn't need any introduction, Australian and Queensland Red professional rugby player, James O'Connor. James, how are you doing? I'm well, guys. I'm well. I think it's a little bit earlier here than it is where you are. So, sun's out for me. A bit late for you. It is definitely uh, not so sunny on this side of the uh, hemisphere. But uh, so you've just been hitting the training and ready for the Super Rugby season next week, I believe. Yeah, we're just finishing up our preseason block. So I've been, well, it's been about six weeks, sort of, um, oh, about nine, ten weeks all up. So it's actually the last day tomorrow of the uh, official, you know, preseason, and then uh, we get stuck in, have the Hurricanes next weekend. So it's uh, coming to an exciting part of the year. How does preseason look for you, James? Like, obviously, you'd imagine a professional rugby player is not as grueling as it would be for us amateurs. Like, what? What does preseason look like for you guys? Ah, uh, man, it's changed a lot over the years. To be fair, this is uh my seventeenth season, so I actually remember, yeah, my first one compared to this. It's definitely um training loads have increased a lot. Uh, there's a lot more, I guess, just professionalism in the sport. So we're, we're pretty much on from Monday to Saturday, um, sort of half a day Wednesday, but you're doing yeah, double days most days in pre-season and uh, you probably get a gym session in maybe three or four times a week, depending on uh, where you're at in your career. So um, it's full on, man. It's full on. Lords of Broncos as well, I'd say, is there? Oh, there's... They've they've actually turned away from the Broncos this year. I I really enjoy the Bronco because I'm I'm pretty good at that one. Whereas they're going more back to the yo-yo sort of style and a bit more um MAS running, so uh, like speed grids and stuff like that, which I find that a little bit tougher because it's sort of like maximal effort, sort of ten maximal efforts of maybe twenty two meters, or you got sort of forty five meters, eight seconds on, you know, ten seconds off, that sort of thing. Um, but to be fair, they look after me pretty well. The younger boys have to do a bit more work than me. <laughs> Too right, too right. And our benchmark for the Bronco, my team would be like, if you're under five, you're good. So, like, yeah. what would you consider good? What's your PB? Well, my quickest is four thirty-two. Um, but I think oh, they've got like all different sort of area, like they've got all different um categories. So to get apparently world class, you have to get under four forty. So um, I uh, I really busted my ass to get that four thirty-two. Uh, well, I've got to be fair. I've got a background in uh, so when I grew up or well, growing up as a kid, I I did athletics. So my number one sport was probably uh, track, eight hundred and fifteen hundred meters. Um, so I've always had sort of a decent base in in that respect. Um, 
it's more uh more the speed now versus some of the these uh specimens out out wide who are running you know over 10 meters a second <laughs> right you did 800 and 1500 and how old yeah. did, did you do them up until well i wasn't wasn't quick enough for 100 that was always the glory event right you could do one up to hundred. I'm sure I would have uh, prioritized them, but I did it up to about fifteen. So I won. Um, actually won the national championships when I was, I think, at thirteen. So I was like, yeah, I was, I was decent at it. But then um, got to high school, and you, you sort of, you couldn't do both. Like, you couldn't play rugby and do track because you sort of, I'd just be my weight would be fluctuating too much. Plus, I, uh, I really started enjoying footy. I'm, oh, man, I love team sports. Any, any time there's a little bit of competition a bit more camaraderie with the guys i really uh sort of um yeah chose that in high school and then went down that route that's class that's class yeah it's actually i obviously didn't end up in the same place as you did but uh i actually used to always be a cross-country runner as well and then when i was like 14 or 15 i got trials in rugby and i was like yeah rugby's way better because of the team aspect <laughs> but uh there's something about winning gold medals as an individual as well though, isn't there Oh man, for sure. Like, there's nothing like nerves before an actual race. Like before a rugby game, you get sort of you get the butterflies and the nerves and whatnot. But there's so many different stoppages and moments to sort of reassess. When you're when you're running, it's just it's the mind game from the beginning. So yeah, I've never been as nervous as I have when I used to run track. I remember one. Oh, there was times when I'd be running at nationals or at state level, and the nerves would be that much. You just want to, you wouldn't want to run. <laughs> <laughs> the pressure I put on myself. Oh. What's what talking of nerves there? What's like the nervous you've had, most nervous you've ever felt before a game? Most nervous I've felt before a game. Um, probably my debut. Actually, not my debut. Maybe um the first time I played the All Blacks and came off the bench. I um yeah I was pretty nervous to be fair in that game. Uh, I think I dropped the ball maybe four times. <laughs> I think I dropped it. I think I dropped the ball. My first touch, I dropped the ball. I got the ball ripped off me. But yeah, that was the most nervous I've been. Was um like when you start a game, I find it's like when I even when I was younger, when you'd start the game, you're in it, you're in the action. You know, straight away you're you're out of your mind and you're into that just almost like that instinct mode where you're just playing off the cuff and you're you're you've met the energy. Whereas when you're sitting on the bench waiting for your time to come on, you're watching the collisions. You know, you might be behind on the scoreboard or even when it's really tight and you you know, you got to come on and make an impact. That's when sort of the butterflies can come because you, at times, especially when you're younger, you can go into your head and be like, oh, what if this happened? Or, or what if that happened? Or what if I drop the ball and we lose? Or so they were the um the moments when I was younger. But now sort of I don't, it's not so much about getting nervous. Like you get excited for games. And I as soon as you feel that sort of that excitement come, that energy starts building. That's when you know it's sort of game time. Even your body starts prepping for it. It's kind of so like a nervous, positive energy sort of feeling. Yeah, well, it's it's how you use it, right? You could feel that nervousness and um, shrink from it. And that's where you see sort of guys, you know, like um, they lose sort of sensation in their, in their hands and, you know, they can get a little bit stiff and jittery or you can embrace that excitement and, and the crowd and the energy in the stadium and really just let it, you know, guide you and, um, you know, fill you up with more energy. Like, there's been times in games where you can rely on the crowd. Like, I'll be stuffed at times, but literally you can rely on the energy in the stadium, that big moment to literally push you through. And there's times where I don't know how I've got through certain games, but 
you look back on it and you recognize that, hey, it was just letting go and just embracing the environment. You're mentioning uh, your debut there and the crowd getting behind you. So how would it have been for you going from like being in high school where I imagine you might have been lucky to have like 500 or 1,000 watching to going straight into your Super Rugby debut? Like how did that feel for you at the time? Well, we, man, we actually used to get good crowds at our, um, at our, so I went to Nudgee College. So it's a big sort of rugby school up there in Brisbane in Australia. And I think on one of our, old, our last game of the season um, was our old boys days. So we're all, the team we're versus it's like our biggest rivalry. I think we had about 10,000 out to the game at a school, imagine at a school ground, like, plus we've got like our, we're Christian, like uh, we're brothers, um, a school. So we've got like the big sort of church in the background and the high buildings and the sounds just echoing off the walls. And that was probably, it's almost like the loudest I've been at because you've got all your mates from your school, you know, doing war cries and, and that sort of stuff. So for me, super, it wasn't like, it was definitely a huge, like a huge atmosphere. But uh, my first sort of Super Rugby game was actually here in Queensland at Suncorp. And I was just running on fumes, like adrenaline. I was almost like so just in this, like in the zone of like, give me the ball, let me just do something. But I almost didn't even feel the the atmosphere around me. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, Nudgy College, they were, um, they had a thing on rugby pass, didn't they? They had a series. Yeah. 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 Is yeah, so yeah, similar atmosphere for you, but probably more people, is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, like normally you'd get maybe, yeah, a few, maybe 2,000 to the game. Like it would always be full, like the stand and both schools would come and there'd always be, there'd always be a decent crowd there. But for this one particular game, it was like the last one of the season and it was against like our rival school. So like there was a story of they wear red and black and we wear blue and white because... Back in the day, we're both like, you know, Christian Brothers schools. We both wanted blue and white. And we had like a, a game of rugby to decide on who got to wear the strip. And we won. So it's always a, it's always a pretty big event. I still remember, I still remember my schoolboy days there. They're, yeah, very special to me. It's where, it's where I fell in love with Union. That's sick. And who would have been on your team then in that uh, school? I had a playing professional rugby. Joe Tamane. Joe Tamane. Oh, yeah. He my school team, uh, Dom Shipley, played as well. Nikki Price. We had quite a few guys, uh, Stefano Hunt, Matthew Murphy. Had about, I think, five guys going to play uh, Super. Jeez. Like Joe Tamane was actually on the podcast, uh, episode three. Episode three oh, yeah. is our third ever guest, yeah. So um, <laughs> you're the second nudgy man we have. There we go, man. Good stock, eh? Hey. <laughs> Um, what was it like facing the hacker for the first time? Yeah, uh, well, I grew up, I spent about six years of my life in New Zealand. Both my mum and dad were born um, in New Zealand. So when I was five, I moved over there. So like, I know, well, I know two versions of the hacker. Like I went to school there, I learned it, I speak a little bit of Māori. Um, so facing it for me was yeah, exciting because I know what it's about. It's throwing down a challenge. So for me, I just um, like was you pick sort of someone out in the uh, in the opposition team. Don't look at uh, one of their big scary dudes. Find the other little white boy in the team <laughs> and stare him down. Um, <laughs> but it was oh yeah, man, it's 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 incredible. It really sets the scene. It's a uh, just it's a huge energetic boost. I think for both of them, they're getting pumped up. But we're 
like when we're watching that, when we're responding to that, you know, we're we know it's war, we know it's going to be battle. So any last little little moments of hesitation there, straight away smacked out because you know it's coming for you from second one after that Akka, yeah, after they throw that down. And did you ever imagine that you would have been one of the people doing the hacker? Or were you always going to play for Australia? Oh, uh, yeah, I always wanted to play for Australia. Like, I, me and my, my brothers spoke about this. Uh, so my little brother and I, even when we went to school over in New Zealand, we wouldn't sing the national anthem. <laughs> five and five and seven-year-old, four and six-year-old, refused, not refusing to sing the anthem, but we are just like, look, we're... We're Aussie. I actually had a South African mate at my school as well in New Zealand, and he was sort of the same. Like eventually, we like obviously I know the the New Zealand national anthem. Eventually, we, we caved in. But I remember even from a young age, I was like, "Look, I'm I'm Australian, and that's uh, where my loyalties lie." And isn't there something crazy like weren't you eligible for South Africa as well? Yeah, my mum's side of the family is uh well, her parents are South African, so I've got um yeah some decent rugby stock in my blood. Yeah, there's still, there's still a yeah, family over there. Well, most of my family's in New Zealand. Got a few out here in Oz, and like my immediate family's in Oz, um, but I got a few cousins in Oz as well, and then um, some over in South Africa. So there's a, a few of us uh, floating around everywhere. Ireland weren't good enough to get a look in, now. Nah. How oh, well, man, my it's great granddad. So apparently, um, yeah, the old rules or whatever was. Uh, I think it had to it had to be your grandparents or something to be affiliated. But to be fair, like I was, yeah, like I was firmly set on on Australia. My mum was always with the Wallabies. <laughs> but I do have Irish, Irish heritage, yeah. We'll claim you, yeah, yeah. we'll claim you. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you had to choose a nationality that wasn't, sub, if you had to choose a Northern Hemisphere team to play for, who, who would you choose to play for? Ireland, for sure. Yeah. But if Hamish asked you that question before Ireland beat France, what would your answer have been then? <laughs> I love my time in France, but um, I'm definitely not a Frenchie. You speak I think I, I think there, right? Yeah, well, you sort of had to. Like, I, I spent three years in Toulon. So um, when I first moved over there, I, I didn't speak, uh, yeah a word of French and in the town I lived in, in Toulon, like there wasn't too much English going around unless like every now and again, there might be someone at the local store who could speak a little bit of English, but yeah, yeah. You had to learn pretty quick, smart. Um, yeah. So I just started corresponding with, um, you know, the guys on my team and had a few friends outside of rugby over there that were French. And then even like to this day now, like when I speak with them, they'll they make sure I, you know, we're speaking in French so I don't, so I don't lose it. It's actually surprising. I, I remember more now than I did. I speak better French now than I did when I was actually living over there. It's funny when that happens, isn't it? Oh, yeah. man. Like after we, so I went on, um, on a holiday recently, probably about two, uh, two months ago, to Bali, and uh, hung out with a friend of mine, a French mate of mine, for a couple of days over there. And um, we were speaking French for, for a whole day. And then I started dreaming in French again. And that was, that's pretty incredible. And man, in my dreams, I'm bloody fluent. I'm just beautiful friend in my dreams. <laughs> Don Baptiste O'Connor, is it? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, and how did that come about? Because you were in London Irish prior to that, weren't you? So you went from Australia 
it was kind of around 2012, wasn't it? 2011 was that Bledisloe match, wasn't it, in Hong Kong? Then you kind yeah, of went yeah. London Irish in France. How did that all come about? Uh, well, I've, I've played in the British and Irish Lions in 2000, it was actually 2013. And then after that one, um, yeah, I got in a bit of trouble um, in Australia. And it was sort of time for me to just spread my wings a little bit. So I ended up going over to London Irish and um, finished the season out there. Played nine months over there, which was awesome. Lived in Richmond and it was a cool experience playing in the premiership. But my mind, like my heart was always like I wanted to experience France. I'd been speaking to a few French teams probably a couple of years earlier, maybe from 2010, just to go over there and, yeah, explore. And I'd seen what some of the, um like some of the guys who I, I looked up to, like Johnny Wilkinson was playing over there, like someone I'd played with before, Matt Gitter was playing over there and playing really well. And then another friend of mine, Drew Mitchell, had just sort of gone over there. So it was sort of, um I, I felt at that sort of stage in my career, like, I was sort of spinning my wheels in Australia, but also I really wanted to just go and experience a new type of footy. And I'd heard so much about, you know, the French style, the French flair, you know. So I was like, hey, I'll uh, go go over there and um, give it a go. It's um, it's quite funny because when you look at the big French teams and that Toulon team that won back-to-back-to-back uh, European Champions Cups, half, more than half the team weren't French. Uh, the French flat, but that yeah. back line, the back line. You, how did you find integrating into uh, French rugby and with Toulon playing alongside the likes of Quade Cooper mm. and Matt Gitto and all the Australian boys, and also Lee Halfpenny was over there at the time as Drew Mitchell. How was that coming into the star-studded uh, squad as well as yourself joining in there? Well, to be fair, it was very simple. Like, it was very easy. It was tough at the start because I didn't speak a word of French, didn't understand anything, and Bernard Laporte only co- like coached in French. So I would just be sitting in the meetings just like, I've got no idea what this bloke's saying. Like, I'm watching footage, but I don't know what he's saying here. But to be fair, there was guys who could, like Matt could uh, speak French and he would translate for us. And there was a translator as well. But, you know, you had, we I think we can, we had two, like, literally 40 international players in that squad. We had two, like, full international teams on the training paddock. When we did 15 on 15, there was times where there was international players who couldn't even get on the training field. So it was pretty incredible. Like, we had, you know, was like, Michelac was there as well. Like, Trinduk, Gitz, Marnonu, Bastero, Rudy Wolf, Brian Habana, Dallin Armitage, like, Josh Tuisava. We had some David Smith. There was Lee Halfpenny. There were some, um, man, some good players. So uh, it was very easy to fit into that because everyone was sort of, like I was a younger bloke, so still learning. So I wanted to learn from these guys who had almost, not at the end of their career, but had been there, done that, and had a lot of wisdom to share. So I was just going in there, just picking people's, you know, brains and trying to understand how they saw the game and the intricacies that they were learning at. Um so yeah, the hardest part was uh, trying to make the the starting fifteen. That was um, yeah, that was very, very hard to make that fifteen. I don't think who I ever. Who learned the most from them games? Like who would have gave you the most uh, nuggets of information? Like it's hard to put to one person because at that stage in my career as well, I was playing fifteen. I was playing center. Played a bit of ten. Played on the wing. So I was literally picking up ideas from everyone. Um, like 
outside the backs, Dallin Armitage and Drew, I learn a lot from. Um, like inside backs, probably the most was Gets and Ma. Um, oh yeah, I learned, learned a lot from those guys, just sort of how they saw the game. And then as well, like Johnny as well, because Wilkinson was um coaching at that stage with us, so he'd come in maybe once a month for a few days and started learning how to re like did kicking with him but just little philosophies within the game like games within the game and how to train properly and how to push yourself like mentally exhaust yourself without physically taxing yourself and um so man there was a there was a lot of wisdom in that team a lot of rugby IQ I haven't experienced anything like it since what does that look like mentally exhausting yourself or physically exhausting yourself like what what would you do to get to that level (laughs) oh man like Okay, to put it really simply, like if you're kicking at, at a goalpost, everyone thinks you're just trying to get it through the goalpost. But really, we've got a target, not even the black dot. There might be a scoring system of just outside the post, the post, here, there, there. So it's like even when you're getting it, you might still be missing. So there's little targets. It's the same as like when you're passing or when you're breaking down like your f- footwork or your ball playing. It's not just like you're not just looking at the overall, pro- like the overall picture. You're looking at the process of how it felt, what what the ball sounded like coming off your foot, um, the shape of the ball, how it spun, how many revolutions, like that's just for kicking. So there's like there was, yeah. So you're constantly training your mind so to the point where I could kick the ball and feel where it was gonna go. If it was half off this way, half off that way, how low it was, how high it was, the spin of it, how far it's gone, just from like the feel of the ball, let alone the sound. And so that's what I was, I wasn't anywhere close to that when I first went there, but that's sort of what I started to learn. And then I took that to the next level and I started working with a guy called Dave Aldred, um, which then yeah. developed a little bit further. And so, yeah, that was, that's sort of the game within the game is it's not just the outcome, it's a process. And it's even before you've seen or, or heard, it's the feeling of something. And then you yeah. can go into visualization and even the steps before that, being able to train without training you know i've been able to just be sitting here while you're training going into your mind coming up with shapes coming up with plays yeah it was tough when i first started but now it can be a fun game because <laughs> hey who wants to train in 40 degree heat all the time for three hours <laughs> it's better than training in the snorter right yeah i mean i spent two years in sale and that was one of the toughest things i've done not because the training was that hard like it was tough training good training but just because every session was bloody rain, even if it wasn't raining, you're running out onto the field, starts pouring. I started I started my season there wearing full skins, full trackies, top skins, jumper, jacket. And then by the end of it, they'd turn me into a northerner and I'd just wear my shorts and, and uh, jersey. But man, that was, uh, that was something. So yeah, I can't, I shouldn't complain because I choose the sun <laughs> over, over the rain 90% of the time. And that would have been with um the Steve Diamond there, was it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. How, how was it going with Steve and everything uh over in in Sale? Because I've heard he's he's a really good one on one coach and really brings out the best out of his players. Oh, I love Steve. I thought he was great. And for me, at this time in my life, where I was coming off like um I was rebuilding my life and my career. And Steve was the perfect guy to help me transition with that. 
he was tough, but he was fair. He pushed you, but he'd pull you in tight. He supported you. He was really um, not like a mentor, but he uh, I had a lot of trust for him. Yeah, I had a lot of trust. And he allowed me to do things that a lot of other owners and coaches wouldn't allow because I was training, doing, going on training camps. Um, I was doing a lot of stuff outside of rugby to better my footy. Um, and lots of, I guess, I've been involved in programs where guys can get a bit, you know, itchy when you're leaving the team environment to better yourself because they want to be controlling. They want to be on top of, like, all your athletic performance. Whereas Steve was just, uh, he had a lot of trust. And, and I repaid that trust. Well, I hope I did. But I did it as best as I could. And, um, yeah, I, I thought he built a really good environment. I enjoyed, I really enjoyed playing under him. James, so, can you elaborate on that a small bit, the training camps? Like, what type of training camps would you go on that other players wouldn't do? Well, I just had ankle surgery. I had, had ankle surgery. Um, so it was, man, I went up to the Highlands a couple of times, went to Iceland a few times, and it was like heat exhaustion through saunas, um, like did like lots of ice exposure, ice baths, um, lots of like cross-country running again. Um, I did uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, some wrestling, all sorts of... I even did a... I can't remember what the name of it's called. Um, it's like a form of uh, Filipino martial arts where you got these two, like, sticks. Um, so what it does, it syncs up your left and right lobe together, but you're doing all these different patterns, hitting with your left and your right hand. So it was it was really interesting training. It was cool. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was fun training camps. Tough, grueling, because you're doing sort of like five sessions a day I changed like my sort of my eating habits and my plans and even just a lot of like a lot of the stuff how I live my life changed because of my time at sale in England yeah and uh, in terms of them cooling baths and all that did you ever read into Wim Hof or anyone like that yeah yeah bro uh, well I've got a got an ice bath here at mine I got a sauna and an ice bath and a little gym etc uh but yeah, I well, I, I looked into Wim Hof. My brother got me onto him maybe back in like 2015, um, the hypoxic breathing, and but I'd never really gone into it fully. And then when I was yeah in the UK, and sort of more so when I came back to Australia, I really um, well, I man, I love I love his work. I love his teachings. There's uh, I think there's, it's yeah, it's powerful stuff. I actually spent a week out um, so I made him a week out with Led Hamilton, you know, the big wave surfer. He does yeah. a lot of work with Wim Hof and um, he's created his own curriculum of, uh, of training, combining like pool workouts, power exercises to training your nervous systems in heat and in the cold. And uh, spending a week out there with, uh, with him doing some of his sessions was uh, an eye opener as well. Jeez, that, that sounds incredible. I definitely love to do something like that. And um, it's cool. It's out in Malibu in yeah. the US, California, on my way back to Australia from the UK, I stopped off there for two weeks and did a little training camp before I joined up with the, um, the Australian guys and tested my arm for the, uh, the World Cup 2019. And who put you on to all this? Like, you said your brother got you to Wim Hof, but, like, who put it into your head to do external training camps? No, well, I'd been searching for, for something for a long time. Like, it's... It's no secret, like I had quite a checkered history with, um, you know, partying and some uh, antics off the field. So for me, it was like when I was in France, I just, I wasn't content in my, I guess, in my being and my person. So I was just searching for something more than just rugby and a night out. And um, 
yeah, I started finding different teachings and um, different gurus, spiritual teachings, that sort of stuff, and uh, then sort of just developed from there. I guess when you put something out there, like manifestation, how it sort of works is, yeah, when you put your mind onto something, you can sort of attract those people into your world and, and those sort of things. And I just, yeah, I really just enjoyed testing myself in, um, in a new way because I'd, I'd done that on the rugby field. I'd done it in sort of the weights room. I'd done it on the track. But these other, like the game within the game, like, you know, sitting in, first time you sit in an ice bath, geez, that's an experience. First time you go on a sauna for 20 minutes, like, that's that's a cool experience. I don't know if you've done those like back then. Was it the sauna tonight there for twenty minutes before it is? Then try to get on an assault bike in the in the sauna at a hundred degrees for ten minutes. Again, like it's challenging your body, but a lot of that uh, stuff is it's all mental, and that's sort of where it was coming down. Where I was sh- falling short in my life at times was the mental battle. So that I yeah I seeked uh, some stuff outside of me and I'm just grateful that the right people came into my world and uh, and I found the right information. Yeah, and there you mentioned I'm um, trying to find other parts of your being. So like obviously you were thrust, uh, thrown into professional rugby at 17. So do you feel mm. that when you started so young that when other players are coming up at 21, 22, they'd already done a bit of the soul searching? whereas you never got the chance because it was always rugby, rugby, rugby. Do you think that led into the search? Yeah, for sure. I think um, probably the biggest thing for me was because I started so young, I didn't know really who I was. I was still a teenager when I started. So then you start believing like someone tells you what you're like in the newspaper or someone depicts you as this sort of person and you have these characteristics and, you know, this is who you are. And then you're like, oh, okay, I must be like that. If they're saying that you take, you just, you have a big trust at a young age. Um, and then eventually like the narrative changes a little bit. And then apparently you're a bad person after making a mistake. And, you know, you're an 18 year old and uh, you do what most 18 year olds do. And you push the boundaries a little bit on a night out. And, and then I'm a bad person because of it. Whereas a lot of other people, I guess, can make mistakes behind closed doors. But that was my journey was to be, you know, in the public eye from a young age. Um, and I think that really did, well, it, it did condition me in a way where, um, yeah, I had some trauma from it and I had to heal that. Uh, and I really had to find out who I was. And that's sort of the reason for leaving Australia in that 2013 was because I was just, I needed to get out of the bubble and just take, not take pressure off. I, well, it was pressure I was putting on myself because I was, you know, I was so involved in like what this person said about me or, this person said I had a terrible game. I'm like, well, what does he know about rugby? Because like, he played at the top level and then he's telling me about my character as well because he saw me tell a, one of my own teammates to piss off on the field. I'm like, you're in the heat of the battle. Like, that sort of stuff happens. But again, like, I believed all this stuff and I was just quite, um, well, man, at a young age, you can be quite vulnerable. So when you don't have that, like I guess, that deep belief in yourself anymore and in who you are, and then you're playing all these different characters to fulfill, I guess, the need in someone else. Like I was wheeled out a lot of times to, you know, businessmen to, I was a poster boy for this thing, for that thing. You know, I was, I was doing this, I was doing that. So eventually, you know, I sort of, I was confused with who I was and I was always doing something. Like I was always either, you know, playing footy or going out or hanging out with the guys, playing rugby away, playing FIFA. That 
I never actually spent too much time on my own, which didn't help either. Because then when I was on my own, I was like, geez, <laughs> got to deal with these these thoughts that are coming in that I don't like. I better go busy myself again. Yeah. And like, is there any, was there any mental skills coach there at the time uh, in any of your clubs or for the Wallabies? Or was that not a facility you had at the time? Uh, like, there's guys that were around. Um, like, you can always seek it. If, again, like, if you want help, you can always put your hand up and ask for it. But I didn't think. Like, I was like, hey, I'm playing at the Wallabies at 18. Who's this guy going to help me? Like, plus, I didn't want anyone to know as well, too. Like, it was a, it's that sort of that stigma again that if you put your hand up and say you're not okay, like, does your world come crumbling down? Or even if you admit that you're not okay then you've admitted it to yourself then you have to do something about it so i was just living in denial it was quite a like a vicious cycle um but yeah it, it worked for a while until it didn't yeah yeah did you um, did you have any players or coaches or so, someone that you could talk to that, like during this time or did you have any mentors what, what between the ages of like 18 and then playing for the Wallabies, like who were people you looked up to or mentors that kind of helped you through that transition phase? Yeah, there was quite, like, that's when there were some good men in my life. Um, at the end of the day, it's like, if you're pretending, it's up to you, really. So, like, I had enough good people around me to, um, yeah, to figure things out earlier. But again, it's, everyone's journey is different. Took, yeah, took me to, to go overseas and, hit rock bottom a few times and fail a few times to fully just take ownership of my world and my life. It wasn't like there wasn't the right people around because there's always the right people around. You can have a conversation with most people and, and get it started. Um, it was just, that was my journey was to go this way and to learn. And I'm grateful that it did because I ride, I rode some incredible highs and some very, very dark lows, but that's got me to a place now where I'm very content in my world and, and yeah, I know, I know what's true to me, and I and I, you know, I know what I want in my world, and I know what I like, and life's quite peaceful. Yeah, and I I can imagine in your mini jungle there, you're very content <laughs> and uh, happy there. I mean, like yeah, you were saying, said the alpacas today, so I'm surprised you can't hear them. Actually, they're a bit cross with me. <laughs> like you're saying, it's like a, it's kind of like a roller coaster. So you're doing your ups and downs. Uh, we've obviously talked to a few of the downs things, but what's what's some of the greatest moments of your career, or one one point in your career where you're like, you know what, I'm really happy with where I'm at right now. There's been many times on the field, like many big wins um, that I've thoroughly enjoyed, like in Test matches. I guess the playing the All Blacks, we beat them um, in Hong Kong. That was a pretty special moment for me. World Cup. In 2011, um, beating South Africa in that quarterfinal, kicking the goal to win that. Um, coming back to Australia and making the World Cup squad when I, you know, from all accounts, I was um, down and out and, yeah, wouldn't be able to come back and do it. And, you know, I got myself to a place where I was capable of playing at the international level again and was involved in the 2019 World Cup. Again, beating the All Blacks in Perth was pretty special. Um, taking my captaining my um, Queensland Reds team to a, a Super Rugby AU title with um, Liam was pretty incredible as well. It's definitely been a highlight. I think 
for me, it's more of the stuff off the field now. Like, I genuinely just love having a coffee in the morning and going for a stroll on the property with my dog and my, and my missus. And like I said, I've got my ice bath, the sauna's running at the moment as well. So I'll jump in there once I get off from you guys and start my recovery process. Um, and yeah, it's literally just being around the guys as well, to be fair. Like we've got a great group at, at the Reds and there's guys on the team that I just genuinely enjoy being around. I, I love them for who they are. We've got some great characters and and then there's the element of playing. Hey, like I don't love training. I enjoy it because, it, it, again, it's that mental battle. I love getting in the gym and pushing myself. love exp like expressing myself on the field. But it's the playing that I really enjoy. It's going out there. You know, there's 23 of you and there's 23 of them it's you're just literally responding to stimulus and it's like anything can happen out there on the field and i really enjoy that just that challenge of every week there's a place and a time where i get to turn up and put it all out there on the line and then it's almost wiped clean again the next day so for me that's the beautiful moment is just it's each game it's not so much one game that stands out it's every time i get to go on the field there's always a couple of things that i take from it that i really embraced and loved and thought oh man that was a that was a pretty that was awesome like when we did that together guys that was pretty cool and then there's times as well where it's like oh, you know i didn't quite meet meet the intensity there you know I, I choose to be better next time and in that defensive play or next time i go to the line i got to dig in a little bit more so there's always growth opportunities and there's always things where i'm just like you know when you're sort of they call it the flow state when you get into that moment where you're almost ahead of time and you're not thinking and you pull off just an incredible play and you're almost watching yourself do that play like, man, that was pretty good. You're not too bad. <laughs> you still got it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's the special stuff for me is, uh, is those just the day by day, the day to day stuff. And, um, and then yeah, turning up on a Friday night or a Saturday with your club mates. So you put work in all during the week and just going out there and, and seeing what happens. You're talking about flow state there, James. But I want to know about that game in Hong Kong that you're referring to when you beat the All Blacks. So it's the 80th minute. You've just touched down the ball for Detroit. You're back under 22 waiting for the kick. Like, what are you thinking? Are you thinking anything? Are you in the flow state? The adrenaline's just pumping? Are you like, this is going to be a great night out with the boys? What was going through your head? <laughs> Probably the great night out with the boys came as soon as I saw it went through. <laughs> um... Yeah, to be fair, like, I don't, there was no nerves in that moment. So I was just so engaged. I was so pumped. I was so just, I was just there. It wasn't about like getting it or missing it. It was just like, this is me and the ball and I've got to kick it through there. That's the only challenge. Like, like I said, there's no pressure when you're in that moment where there's no time. Pressure comes from when you leave the present moment and you're like, if I miss, what will happen? Or what will this person say? Or, oh, will I get dropped or will people think this or will I be less of a person? That's when the pressure comes. There's been other moments where I've taken kicks where I've been like lining it up, like hearing my mind chatter, being like, shut up, mind. <laughs> Literally like hearing it chatter to me like, oh, this, you can feel the wind going left. You're going to miss it left. Oh, you can't miss this kick. You've already missed one before. You can't miss this one. And that's the game I like playing because it's that's the game within the game is being able to take control of your thoughts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, hey, telling it to shut up doesn't normally work that well, but giving it another process to focus on tends to be a bit more efficient. 
So that's one of the most famous James O'Connor kicks I remember. Another one would be a kick that actually didn't happen. Do you remember a game yeah, against sure. the Barbarians? Yeah. Right. Daylight robbery, eh? <laughs> what was going through your head? I, still, I mean, I, I was like, I was like, I looked at the ref, I was like, are you going to allow him to just take this ball? He's like, oh, yep, blew it at half time. I was like, what's going on here? Because I didn't, there didn't used to be a rule for like taking too long. Um, but he claimed that I'd started my run up already because I used to do this little um, like jig and then turn my shoulder over to switch my core on. Yeah. So the ref deemed that I'd, um, yeah, started my, my process. I think he apologized. Well, he didn't apologize to me, he apologized to Robbie Jeans after the match to tell me. Sorry, I made a a referee. No, no, not Peter. Peter was like, he was as surprised as I was because he had started running and realized, oh, he hasn't started. But he was like, oh, stuff it. <laughs> so he kept going. We had a good little joke after the game. Um, and yeah, even walking off at halftime, I was like, mate, he's like, hey, I got with it. So, all good, boy. Yourself and um, Serge Betts in now are in the same group. So, Peter Stringer obviously broke off the scrum in 2006 and kept Betts. Betts was still there. He touched down the ball in the Hink Cup final. And then the day he robbed you, there is probably two most iconic. Uh, daylight robberies, you know. Uh, he's yeah. a good man. Yeah, he's but in yeah, some shape now, Peter. Would you ever talk to him, Peter Stringer? He's in some shape. He's in some shape, like he's retired, but he's still gyms away. Do you see him? Yeah, no, I haven't. But man, he's been a specimen for a while now. How old is he? Sixty now. He <laughs> <laughs> could be. He could still be playing. But how he played till what man? They just, just kept it going. I'll go again. I'll go again. Hey, when you love the game that much, I think it's it's awesome. If your your body and your mind can still meet it, like why not? Why not keep playing? If you yeah, if you love it that much, he was a handy player as well. Very handy. Had all the tricks. How about yourself, there, James? How how do you see your? You, I'm guessing your. What's your hopes and dreams for the? The upcoming World Cup and what sort of are your plans for after after the World Cup? Yeah, I'll, like obviously, I'd love to be a part of the World Cup. That's um, it's a huge, yeah, a big goal of mine. That's not something I've sort of, I guess, I got I got dropped from the Wallabies um, last year, and that was a huge moment in my life where I just reevaluated a lot of things and uh, realized that for a few years, rugby had not rugby, but Maybe playing with the Wallabies had defined a big part of my life, which I thought hadn't. Um, so, yeah, it was a very, as much as a huge event in my life, it was also a very empowering event where now I'm in a place where I don't need it. You know, I, I, want, I would love to play in the World Cup and I'd love to represent Australia because that's my dream and that's my goal and I want to play at the top level. But it's not something where it's like, if I didn't make it, it would break me because I've, I feel like I've been through that heartache now and, and, uh, also, I'm just in a place where like I told you I, I just really enjoy playing rugby. It's not about me. Whereas when I was younger, it was about sort of having the perfect game. And even maybe two years ago, there was this pressure I felt on my back when I was playing with the Wallabies that, you know, I had to be perfect or I had to control the game a certain way, which wasn't how I played. I, I was trying to adapt the way I was trying to adapt the way I played to suit another person's coaching style and game plan and also um, just what I thought I needed to be in this team. And it really didn't suit the way I played. And I think it showed on the field that 
I wasn't getting into that. I wasn't putting myself in those positions where I was just literally responding and playing on the, off the cuff and really in the game. I was sort of sitting back and watching and there were still moments where I would engage and play some good footy and etc. but I wasn't my full self. It wasn't the, yeah, it wasn't what I love to do. And after what happened um, last year, I'm just sort of in a position now where I just want to play and whatever happens, happens. And I know if I'm playing good footy and the Reds do well, then maybe I'll get the, the phone call from Eddie. Um, yeah. But if not, maybe another stage of my life begins or, yeah, we'll wait and see. And what's what's your thoughts on Eddie Jones taking over the helm for Australia once again? Well, I think he's a, he's a tried and tested coach. Now He's been there, he's done that. Um, and in his own right, he's a, a powerful man and character. Yeah, I can already see what he's doing for Australian rugby now. Um, he's bringing, yeah, a lot of energy and there's a lot of people sort of getting behind us. It's a critical time in our game as well. Um, we've suffered for a couple of years um, and now we've got sort of this World Cup, we've got the Lions coming, we've got a World Cup in Australia. It's a, I'm feeling like it's going to be, yeah, another golden era in Australia. There's a lot of young guys coming through who have really, um, really been coached well. So their fundamentals are good. Like I've got some young guys at the Reds who are coming through in the 10 position and the centre position and they're yeah very handy football players so I think the state of the game is going to be in good hands um, under Eddie and with these young kids coming through well young men coming through they're talented but uh, I'm I'm really seeing a almost a shift in in mentality where they they're turning up and they want to better themselves and uh, they really want to improve and work hard whereas for, for a while I'd sort of seen guys just sort of coasting um so, yeah. Do you do you kind of see a, a difference in in mindset in the the younger players that are coming through to, compared to when you were younger and coming through and playing at all? So in that sort of sense. Yeah, it's it's very hard to say because I was in a, a different mindset then. So my viewing and what I you know captured in my subconscious is very different to what I'm viewing now. Like I wasn't aware of much going on back then apart from myself, whereas I'm a lot more aware of my imprint and how I am around people and how it affects people and um, that sort of stuff, uh, like in this place where I'm sitting. Uh, but yeah, I think definitely like social media, access to things so quickly, you know, through your telephone, like information, food, anything is at the touch of a button. So when I was sort of coming through, we didn't really have that. Um, and I know even generations before that, you'd have to work a lot harder to get certain things. Um, and that's what I was saying. I've really seen a shift actually in the last couple of years where guys are wanting to put their hand up and like by putting their hand up, I mean like they'll go away and review a game without being asked. They'll come up with new players. They'll watch the Six Nations stuff and see a pattern and be like, hey, have you thought about this? Why did they do this? Should we try this? There's guys I'm seeing in my Reds group I'm not sort of talking about anywhere outside, but I've really seen a, a great shift um, in their mentality. Um, but again, I think as well, when I was playing, when I came to Super Rugby, there wasn't sort of too many of us under maybe 25. The The squad ages were a little bit older, whereas now I think um, a lot of the guys are, yeah, and well, in our squad, the majority would be under 23. Um, so it's quite, it's a younger game, whereas I feel in the UK and possibly in France, a lot of the guys who were starting and in the squads were a bit older. Um, so I think that may play, may have a little bit of an effect as well. 
because um, as you know, sort of as you get older, maybe you not you get you get more aware, but the intricacies of uh, your game become a bit clearer. Um, you know, you understand set piece a little bit more. Maybe you have a little bit more discipline off the field, so it shows on the field and in certain moments. Um, your understanding. Um, you've been coached by a couple of different guys. You know your own patterns in training. Um, so yeah, that definitely play a part too. You said a couple of things there, now, James, uh, about um the guys watch Six Nations, see a different pattern play. There's older guys in England and France. So like for you, what's the difference in philosophy between like the Six Nations or even the UK slash Ireland and uh, Australia, New Zealand rugby philosophies? What what for you? What's the difference? Well, I haven't played like from when I was over there. Um, I found like rugby in the UK was a lot more structured than even rugby in France. I think in in Australia and in the Super Rugby, we have an attack first mindset because of the conditions. It's easier to hold the ball. You can maybe retain the ball for a couple more phases. Whereas in the UK, I found it was very ter- like territory based. It was very almost um, pressure based game. It was like you didn't want to touch anything in your twenty two around your C zone. You know, you you if you weren't going forward in that first phase, you'd look to get rid of it within three phases and put the pressure back on them for a contestable because it's harder to catch the ball in the wet weather. You know, fullback and wingers are isolated, and if they have to jump for the ball, you know they can't throw a twenty meter pass to their support because the ball's wet. You have to catch it on your chest. It's not you know it's not fingertip one hand rugby that we sort of get over here. So I think um, the mentality is over there. I found it was a lot more pressure-based, work your way up the field, almost set like set plays up. The game management was very different. It was like when you get into their half, you've got to come away with three points. You've got to keep the scoreboard ticking over. Whereas in Australia, in Super Rugby, I found it's a little bit, not looser, but there's that ability to sort of play on the edge a little bit more. Um, I think there's a, the games are a little bit more high-scoring. Um, and I'd say like, well, I'd assume our, our backs would get quite a few more touches um, in Australia than and then you know in New Zealand than they do in the UK. Yeah. So it's all of a, it's an attack first mindset. It's almost like attack first, and if they shut it down, you can always put an attacking kick in or take a phase to put a kick. Whereas I found maybe in the Northern Hemisphere it was, you know, kick first, prepare to kick first and then run second. Um, again, this was a this was a couple of years ago. I've already I'm watching this, the Six Nations and seeing a very different picture, um, well, especially with Ireland and France, to what I'd experienced. Yeah. And Finn Russell playing for Scotland, throwing it around. That was that was a performance, wasn't it? I was yeah. I watched that game. And I was like, well done, brother. That that was silky. I just yeah had everything. Took the line on well. He, you can see he's just playing with a spring in his step and. He just he knows his game so well and he knows his teammates and he's just he's having fun out there, which is cool to see. He's Do you remind you of Quade Cooper any of it? Uh well I know them both. So they're very they're very different people. Um but in terms of their like their gamesmanship, they I think the thing that people see with that is they both have great like the velocity that they throw the pill in is there's not many people who can throw as flat and as hard and just some great time and they're like spatial awareness is very good. Um, 
But I would say that, yeah, they're very different players. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And as well, you were on with the game management aspect. So you obviously had to come up and go to Northern Hemisphere style. But how do you think someone like um, a Johnny Wilkinson, for example, would have got on in Super Rugby? So if you plugged him into your Western Force team or into the Melbourne Rebels, how, how would Johnny Wilkinson get on? Man, Johnny had an incredible skill set. Like when I was kicking with him, he was using his opposite foot and beating me in kicking challenges, let alone some of the passing drills we were doing. He was ripping every time 20 meters on the on the chest, on the hands. So his skill set was incredible. He had a hard work like good work rate and he was very physical for a you know for a 10. So I think he would have slotted in really well. Um Again, it depends on the team, the system you're playing in. Is he as elusive as a Richie Mwanga? No, he isn't. Is he as quick as a Bowden Barrett? No, he isn't. But in his right, he controlled the game very well. So I think he'd probably bring a, a steadiness to a team like that that we hadn't seen before in Australia. His accuracy and his kicks, especially if they had this 50-22 rule back then, I'm sure he would have snuck a few of them in. If the 50-22 existed back then, then Munster would have been winning Heineken Cups every year. Ron Nogara, King and Gardens. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we'd see a couple more drop kicks as well. A few more yeah, shots at goal. The scoreboard would be ticking over. So that's I mean, like every every generation's had their incredible players, and I think each player, when they play their own unique style, is always going to go well if they can adapt to the team to plan their way and you know, they can also meet the team where they're at. Yeah. And in terms of play style, um, Australia is obviously heavily influenced by rugby league because a lot of you guys would grow up playing both. Has it ever um, came into your mind to try NRL? Well, I, I started in the league. So I played league for most of my junior footy. Um, and yeah, I was, I was actually signed with Parramatta Eels out of school and then literally just made the decision and uh, lucky lucky enough they actually released me from my contract to be able to go play union and then when I was yeah around the time I was going to London Irish I was pretty close to signing with the Melbourne Storm um, had a few meetings with Bellamy and and um, those guys and was yeah pretty close to giving it a crack but my heart was always in was always in union I felt like I had unfinished business um, and there was just things I'd well, I wanted to travel the world and, and play in a lot of different countries. And in hindsight, like, man, I would have loved to have played a season or two of league. Well, it's brutal and, like, the the level of detail they have, like, they've really mastered sort of out, certain elements of the game. But the thing I love about rugby is you don't know what the defence is going to put up. You don't know how many people are going to fold. You know, you don't know how long someone's going to hold the ball for. Um, I find it, it's a lot more unpredictable and that challenge excites me. So I assume in league you would have been a halfback, yeah? Yeah, played half. Yes, seven, six and seven I played. So you would have been with the Eels and you would have been feeding Jared Hayne out the back or else you would have been in the storm. <laughs> Cam Smith passing you the ball. Uh, Frank, Billy that Slater. So that was um, that was the plan. Literally, I can't remember who left at six. Um. So, so what, their their six had just English? left. So, uh, nah, it was um, he's a an English bloke. I can't remember what his name is now. He, this was two thousand thirteen. 
he's a good player. I come, I don't know how I'm forgetting his um his name, but yeah. So he left at six, and then yeah, when I spoke to Bellamy, yeah, you know, they had Cronk at seven. Like they had, you know, the big three. That would have been sick. Slater and Cam Smith, and yeah, they were, he's like, look, obviously I had to get into the team, but he's like, we would sign you to be, you know, the the six, the the five eight, and and learn from these guys, and yeah, see how you go. Sign you on a one year deal, and if you're doing well, we'll sign you for a little bit longer. So man, that would have been a like part of me, like that's a different, a whole different timeline. That it is definitely something I would have loved to have explored. But I, again, I'm grateful for the position I'm in because I've got to yeah, travel the world and play with some of the best union players of, you know, through all different countries. You know, I've got to play with All Blacks, Springboks, you know, Irishmen, Welshmen, like the literally the works. Some of the best yeah, Islander players like Fijians, guys like Josh Tuisava who are just in their own right. And you, how do you tackle that bloke? How do you tackle that look is the question. I, I haven't been able to figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> what What was it like uh, playing alongside Danny Cipriani compared with uh, Quade Cooper, for example? Uh, well, both, again, very different players and both very good at what they do. Um, so I, play, I played with Sips uh, in, at the Rebels in 2012. But we only got maybe four or five games together because he ended up going back. He went to Sale. So he was looking to go back to Sale and play in the national setup again. Whereas I've spent, which I mean, I really enjoyed playing with Danny. I learned quite a bit from him, the way he saw the game and the way he structured his attack um, was cool. And I still use a lot of the things, like a lot of the things he taught me, I still add into my game now. And then I've spent a lot more time playing with Quaid. I spent four or five years playing with him. And, um, you know, we're still in contact now. We haven't actually played together with the Wallabies in the last sort of year or so because we've both been sort of playing 10. One's been on the field, one hasn't been. Um, but, yeah, like I've built a, a really good playing relationship with Quaid. And, again, he's like I've moved into the 10 position in 2020. So there's things um, about that position, about the game that, I mean, I love chatting to him about. We have some really good conversation, and uh, yeah, feed off each other quite well. He's he's got a great knowledge set of rugby. He sees the game very differently to a lot of the other guys who I've worked with too. So that's the great thing about rugby is there's not just one way to play the game. There's ten, twenty different ways, and one person might be seeing this shape will work, or no, no, in this situation you, you do this, and then another guy's saying the complete opposite thing. He's that without yeah. It'd be hard for me to draw patterns with my hands out. But there's, I, like I draw, but draw a few patterns. I want to see you. <laughs> yeah, there's so many different ways to like break apart a defense that I find is is so cool. And speaking to different guys who have all mastered their game to a certain level in a different way, it's just cool seeing how their minds work and like, and how are you seeing that? Like, I would never have like speaking to my, I would never have thought to do this in this situation, but now I've they've explained it to me i can see and i'm like oh, i can see how that works i can break it down and then maybe next time i come around the corner and i've got a certain shape and a certain defense i'm find myself calling this shape or this pattern so it's uh, always upgrading your game and um just playing you're like a kid playing and always continually learning the moment you stop learning is the moment you flat out exactly i think that's a really important point to hammer home for all the oldies, oldies out there. 
And what what was your relationship like with these guys kind of off the field with Danny when you were younger, uh, down in uh, the Rebels, and then Quaid, obviously, you kind of came up through the system together playing in, in Australia. How were you guys off the field? Oh, best mates. You know, we came up, like, Danny ended up living with me in Melbourne, moves into my spare room without me knowing. How's that? <laughs> Just one day, one day found all his clothes in my room. They didn't like, said, like, we would hang out most days. And the same with Quaid. Like, Quaid was my best man, like, coming through rugby. And, you know, we spent yeah, so much time together. You know, when you're in Wallaby camp, you're, um, yeah, you're, you're literally living with your teammates. And so, yeah, me, him and uh, Curtly would room every, yeah, all the time. That was, that was our, that, yeah, they were my roommates for six months of the year. And then the other six months of the year when we were in Super Rugby, we were, we were always catching up, whether I was flying to Queensland or he was coming to Melbourne or, so, um, you know, when you build a bond, like, in the team, like, they're your brothers. And then you've always got guys on the team who you're closest with. And, you know, these guys were, well, we saw each other on, like, we were going through the same experiences. You know, we were young guys coming through the team, all in ball playing positions, all running teams, not really knowing how to deal with the politics of outside stuff. And we're still, you know, kids adapting and learning. We had good rugby knowledge, but how do you communicate these ideas? And how do you communicate your feelings and your emotions? And how do you get points across? So we were always sharing in many different ways not just about footy but about life and um yeah when you're when you're coming together at that level and also when you're under the same scrutiny you can um you feel for each other because i could see what was happening to him or i could see what was happening to another one of my friends and you feel for them because you, you i'd experienced it maybe two weeks earlier that particular situation so it really yeah brought out a bond and very tight and kind of the you you imagine yourself, Quaid, Curtly, the three roommates, the three musketeers. What what sort of antics did you kind of get get up to off the field in your spare time when you weren't training and you weren't uh, playing in the matches? Was there any sort of like events no, or nights like, out that you memorable? No, no, no. Like you, you do a lot of exploring. Um... Like especially when, like when you're on spring tours, you're just you know checking out the cities, walking through. Like at that stage, um, well, Quaid loves his fashion, so we'd always be shopping for the, the coolest jacket or whatnot. And um, well, man, a lot, yeah, a lot of the time it's just hanging out in the room and you know hanging out with the guys, going for coffees. Someone would always bring a PlayStation, so you'd have a bit of FIFA going on or um, some rugby 08 or something like that. Did who do you think is the best team in rugby 08? Oh, South Africa for me. Ah, really? And uh, you, I, I can stack that team. I'm a speed player. Got ah. Russell in there, Peterson, Pulse, Montgomery. Montgomery at 10, pumping corners. Mate, unstoppable. To be ah. fair, I was pretty good because O'Driscoll can't be tackled. And uh, O'Gara pumping corners. Yeah, yeah, true. But he can't tackle. <laughs> um, and he, uh, yeah, but my, my team was South Africa and rugby away. And every now and again, I play with um, England as well. You could, you could stack England's side too. They had some speed. Like I, like, like I said, I like a speed game. 
all these circles back and forth. And but the thing with England was Wilkinson was always on the bench unless you edited your roster and put him in starting oh, game at me. You have to edit, man. Come on, you know it was rookie hour. I'm, <laughs> picking, I'm picking guys who aren't even in the squad. I'm going through there. <laughs> I'm literally going deep. <laughs> I'm looking for acceleration and tackle bus and top speed. That's all I need. Remember when me and my brother used to play? Um, so obviously you play rugby away for years, not just in 2008. But uh, 2009 Springboks were there. And Pierre Spiest was after yeah. coming through. And Francois Stein. So we actually created our own players. But Pierre Spiest was 99 everything because he was such a freak. <laughs> <laughs> and to that too, yeah. I tackling that like because I was playing. So in 2009, 2010, I was playing on the wing that right wing, every scrum, he'd pick at eight and run at me. And I was like, mate, give it a break. Come on. <laughs> Fast, strong. Yeah, he was a powerful guy. Uh, he was like a super soldier, wasn't he? Genuine, man. Yeah. Genuine. Like, yeah, an Adonis. I think even <laughs> when we were playing in South Africa, there was, um, they used to have these ads on the TV, like these security ads. And he was pretty much like, had pretty much like Superman on his chest. I think he might have even been flying in one of the, the adverts. Yeah. Oh, what a man. What a, what a pack that was. The South Africa pack. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, even now. Like, I've, <sighs> I've played at Toulon, even at Sale, like, I've played with a lot of the South African guys and just they're some of the most physical and brutal rugby players. Best dudes off the field, on the field, like, they can swing a game with a hit. Like, playing with guys like Juwan Smith, Dwayne Vermeule, and Bucky's both are. Like those sort of guys, like, um, yeah, just genuinely powerful, brutal, big bones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned a while ago as well, actually, something that interested me. You're about the different ways of seeing the game and the philosophies. So, like, you're someone who's played 10, 12, 13, wing, fullback, all that every level really you know but obviously a lot of international like how do you see the game what like i know now you're playing 10 but what do you see as your best position on the pitch uh yeah definitely 10 like i i probably mastered center first well like my form of mastery and my skill set or whatnot but now i'm, I'm a 10 now um with like that's where i want to play that's where i love to play i like to yeah i love playing 10 now also, like with my age, like I don't, I don't really want to have to tackle the biggest guys on the field. Like I love pulling the strings, and I love the the mind. Like I told you, the mind game of manipulating defenses, pulling the back three. How do we get to the forward pack? Getting to which parts of the field, gauging the momentum, which is the right kick to pull out of. You know, your uh, yeah. What what's the what's the right move to play right now? And like I, I guess. I feel like my strength is I've played every position, so I know what each position wants and I, and requires, but I also know what's required of them so I can keep them accountable. Um, and also, like, I want to feed them the best ball possible so that they can showcase what they can do. And, like, again, we've got guys in, in the Reds team in all different positions who have amazing skill sets. We've got some really good footballers, not just athletes, but rugby players in our team so there's guys who i want to get the ball to in certain parts of the field or certain 
you know, areas because this is what they're good at, this line or this out ball or getting the arm free on the left side of the field or they've got a, you know, left foot kick or, you know, they skip on the right side. Like, just little intricacies of the game that, you know, breaking down. So the way I play 10 is quite different to the way, you you know, a lot of um, your traditional 10s play in, in the UK uh, yeah. and, well, all through Europe. Um, my game's sort of a bit of a hybrid. But, hey, yeah. <laughs> That's sort of I'm I'm literally just playing from my experiences. I've gathered information from all different positions and all different players and different coaches and and then I just it's almost it's not like I think about just I just go and play now and this is how I play. Yeah. And do you feel guys are more susceptible to your feedback or your criticisms because they know you've done what you're telling them to do? I think so. I'd like to think so as well. Like I hold myself to a standard where like I'm very hard on myself too. So I'm not asking something of anyone else that I haven't done or I'm not doing. Um, and at the same time, like, like I'm not judging my players, like my teammates. If someone's consistently doing something that's falling out of shape or detrimental to the group, then I'll have a word to them. But as well, like I'm not the boss. Like I'm, I am steering the ship out there, but some of these guys as well have they're far greater athletes than what I am now. So I want to get them the ball and let them shine and let them do their stuff on the field because they might be able to beat two or three players. So like I'm it's not like I'm telling them well, I'm trying not to tell them what to do. I'm just using my I guess my knowledge and, and my skill set to one get them the ball, but also create an attack plan and a shape where it best suits our whole team. And then within the team, individuals still get their chances to to do their magic, which lights them up and makes them feel good and enthuses them. Because when guys are happy and enthusiastic, they're playing their best footy and then everyone's vibing and connecting and not even communicating through words. You're, it's through almost energy. It's through like looks. It's through eye contact. It's through a little hand signal. It's like you're almost, you're just connected on this different, yeah, this different place. So. That's my intention for playing the game. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's just pretty cool because if you look at it across the board, like there's not many guys who who play international 10 for one of the big countries that's actually played all the other positions as well, you know? Like if you look at Johnny <laughs> Sexton's only a 10, Finn Russell's only a 10, Intermax 10 or 12, Owen yeah. Farrell is the same, you know, but you're a guy who's literally... Played on the wing, played fullback, played 12, plays 10, you know, you've done it all. So you've seen it. You know, I just find it's, it's interesting, yeah. So, um, yeah, well, that, that's been, man, that's been, yeah, my journey. Again, one thing I've realized is 10 is a very, like, I didn't know the game until I started playing 10, genuinely. Like, I knew parts of the game, little facets, but until you've played 10, man, you don't like, how to how why we do things how you put them together it's a whole new ball game so for me like i've only come to this position really in 2020 these guys who have spent 10 15 years their knowledge would be like incredible like watching a guy like sexton like pull the strings and watching him manipulate defenses i'm like man that's that's there's beauty in it watching someone like farrell when he goes to the line he's so good at making a decision that three decisions whether short hair or out the back He's mastered that so well. And you got someone like Finn who's just literally just flowing out the back and he's he's manipulating like with his body, like he's getting through his offloads, his crossfield kicks. Like 
his timing and feel on the ball is incredible to watch. And he got yeah, someone like Nipmack as well. Like he's only a young bloke, but he's coming through like at such a quick rate. Like seeing what he did on the weekend and even the week before his pinpoint crossfield kicks. Like these, like that oh, man. I love watching these guys play. Um, because I like that's I mean I'm continually learning, and I'm not comparing myself to any of these guys or. It's almost like I'm not even competing with them. I'm just competing with myself to get better and, and keep enjoying the game and grow my skill set. Because the more I grow my game, the more I can help my team grow their game and then possibly share this knowledge. And then the next guy gets better and then it passes on and has that flowing effect. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So um, that'll be it now for the general questions. And uh, I think Hamish has a few fan questions for you here. Yeah, so uh, we'll read off and do the the high speed, fire speed uh, fan questions for you, James, that we got sent in. So the first one is from Safia Legend 2092-1. What was the biggest challenge in your career? Uh, injury. Um, had a, yeah, injuries have been the biggest challenge for me, being able to get on the field. Um, I've spent years sort of maybe not years all at one time but just on the side on the sidelines trying to get back and trying to play who's your best teammate of all time on the pitch oh that's oh man best teammate of all time man i can't i can't put it down to one hey i've had in each team i've there's always been there's always been a dude in each team. All right. So okay, yeah, I can't give you one. The best player in the 2015 Australia Rugby World Cup squad. Well, I wasn't in that squad, so but uh, um the fact my my favorite, like the guys who I've learned most from would probably be yeah, my, the the guys who I loved playing with were Quaid. Drew Mitchell, Gitz, and Ma. Those four guys have probably been, and KB, those those five guys have been my, because I was in an era like when I was younger and I was, that's been the funnest time that I've played rugby. Um, was, yeah, back in that 2000, sort of around that 2010 time for me was, yeah, I just thought in that Wallaby squad it was incredible and I loved playing with those guys, yeah. The next one is from uh, Will. He asks, what is the toughest moment in your career and why? Toughest moments? Um, well, again, like injury is probably for most guys um, injury. But maybe for me, the toughest was when I left Australia, then trying to get back. So I spent sort of five, six years overseas. Really, I only wanted to spend three years. But I couldn't get a contract back in Australia. One because injury, one because I had a reputation where people thought I wasn't a good egg, and um, three, I just I'd lost my like I wasn't playing the best footy I could play because I'd lost certain elements of discipline and and uh, my lifestyle away from rugby wasn't conducive to being like a top professional athlete. So it was the the mental battle of getting my life back in order so I could play rugby at the top level. This question is from Josh. If you're captain of the Barbarians team, what's your back lane? 
Okay. Well, there's guys I'd love to play with. So nine, I'd probably put Dupont. Put myself at ten. Twelve. I've never played with Tuolagi, so I'd love to see what he's like at twelve. Thirteen would be Rajrata. Uh, one wing. Colby Cheslin. The other wing. I don't know who I put on the other wing. <laughs> I'm, I'm stumped to, at this one. Okay, hold up. So I want to give you a... Yeah, maybe, um, maybe a James Lowe. I just like the way, yeah, I love sort of seeing what he's been doing lately. And uh, at fullback, I'd uh, I'd pick a, a 10 at fullback. I'd probably pick uh, Finn Russell at fullback just because I'd, I'd enjoy playing with him, I reckon. I think I'd have a good time away from off the field as well. We'd have a bit of fun. <laughs> a few beers. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's the bar by Zavar, right? Connecting with the guys and playing exciting footy. The next one is from Hargreaves. He wants to know your top three players of all time. Top three players of all time. Uh, I would say, oh, it's a tough one. Um, Dan Carter, Johnny Wilkinson, and Matt Hitto. They're my three. Yeah. Nice. And to wrap it up, this question's from Ryan Hogan. Uh, what advice would you give to an 18-year-old James O'Connor? Well, it's going to be some ups and downs, brother. So just enjoy the ride and uh, remember who you, are, who you are, who your friends, your close friends and family are, and that's all that matters in life is, uh, you know, your close relationships and, you know, knowing yourself on a deeper level and then just enjoy your footy. It's a, it's a game to be played. So a lot of 18-year-olds would like to hear that right now. Yeah. Uh, James, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for coming on here on the Champagne Rugby Pod. And if anyone wants to reach you on the socials, where can they see you? Uh, James O'Connor, 832. That's my uh, Wallaby number, 832. 832nd Wallaby. Got that one. It's my pride to that one. <laughs> but yeah, been a pleasure, guys. Appreciate your uh, your time. It's been a good yeah, chat. Pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate your time. It's cool. You guys, uh, yeah. It's probably what time is it over there? Eleven p.